You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Forty years of This is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruben Pupko. Hello, I'm Avram Kivalevich, and Rabbi Ruben Yeshua Pupko sits in Montreal, Canada, across from me through Zoom. A distance, yes, but we still, of course, are part of North America. We know that all of us pray three times a day for the restoration of Yerushalayim, for Yisrael, for the Karen Zia. And in fact, the uh, World Zionist Organization continues to push for their goals that have been constant for over 100 years. And paraphrasing from their mission statement, Aliyah to Israel from all countries and the effective integration of all immigrants into Israeli society is a goal we must work for. Despite being geographically spread throughout the world, we'll nurture mutual Jewish responsibility, defend the rights of Jews as individuals, and as a nation, we will represent the national Zionist interests of the Jewish people. We will do all in our power to further the settling of the country as an expression of practical Zionism. Now, Rabbi Pupko, I know that you have had various positions and are uh, a staunch defender of the state. Let's put the cards on the table. We know that if we would push for all of people in all Jewish people in North America <laughs> through Europe to immigrate to Israel, uh, the country would not be able to accept everyone. And even more importantly, they probably don't want to because they need to have the type of wealthy um, donors throughout North America and throughout Europe to be living their lives and earning um, millions and millions of dollars to be able to help to send the tzedakah, to send uh, things to Karen Ayasod, to be able to have that country continue. And because and, and clearly just to rely on aid dollars would not be enough. They need to have donors that they constantly tap throughout the year, as all these dinners indicate. And even more so, we know that they're always, in their propaganda, the uh, many of the organizations are saying, come to Israel, come, make Aliyah, we're ready for you, just come right away. Netanyahu says it often. However, we know it's difficult to make that jump. I know with my own children the difficulties that they had. I'm sure you also understand that. And as a rabbi, I, I, I am sure that you have been in a situation where people have asked you and said, should I make Aliyah, rabbi, I'm ready? And these are people who you don't want to see go. These are people that are the foundations of the shul. And it isn't just your vested interest. You also know how difficult it's going to be when they go there, and they probably won't be able to make the money that they need <laughs> to actually uh, to, to get through things. So you're, this, this enterprise of full aliyah before the messianic days is something that, the uh, uh, the right wing views as a canard, and they view it as something that, yeah, you know, you want Aliyah, and we're, and we're not against it, but 
it's 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 a, it's a straw man that many people believe they call it a straw man. They don't really uh, believe in it. Yeah, send the young people who don't really have much earning power, but keep the people with the guilt over here in this belt. So let's see. Let, let's hear some uh, tales from the trenches, and especially maybe even from your own uh, uh, historical theological perspective. Um. I'm going to answer the question in a strange way. I'm going to start uh, uh, by telling you a story about when I became a Zionist. Okay. When I say that, I mean, when I first really, my first awareness, my first uh, appreciation for uh, uh, for what the state of Israel represents in Jewish life. Um, I, my birthday is in the middle of June. And uh, so about 10 days before my birthday, uh, uh, my tenth birth, my uh, my uh, I'm sorry, my ninth birthday, um, the Six Day War broke out. Um, it was the beginning of uh, June 1967. It was Sunday morning when the war broke out, and I uh, walked into the den in my uh, late parents' home in Pittsburgh, and uh, and I saw something I'd never seen before. Uh, my father was crying, and. Because um, the first reports about the Six-Day War were traumatic uh, because there were false reports coming from Arab radio about uh, what was going on. And this was after weeks of a buildup to the war uh, where Arab leader after Arab leader uh, declared their intent to drive Israel into the sea, Israelis into the sea. Uh, People forget this. Uh, I mean, I remember... They blocked the. I think they blocked the Suez Canal, right? That was part right, of the. Uh, yeah, they, uh, it was a blockade, and um, and then the war began. And but but you're right. Yes, in the, in the weeks beforehand, the UN had pulled out. I mean, it was so flamboyant their desire to, to destroy the state. I mean, I remember sitting two weeks after the war was over, and watching Meet the Press on Sunday morning with then moderator Lawrence Spivak interviewing King Hussein of Jordan, who, whenever he appeared in the media after that, was always had the appellation, the moderate King Hussein, uh, was on uh, Meet the Press, and Lawrence Spivak asked him why he joined the war. Because it was known that, uh, you know, that it was some question whether or not Jordan would join Syria and Egypt in the assault on Israel. And he was befuddled by the question. And you'll forgive me if my memory is not 100% accurate. It is a little old, uh, the event I'm talking about. And he answered, if I, uh, and I believe I'm, I'm quoting nearly exactly, he said, well, what do you mean to drive the Jews into the sea? And that was a time when Arabs spoke the truth uh, in English. Uh, now they only speak the truth in Arabic. Yes. Um, and, I mean, I remember Teddy Kollek, uh, top left-hand drawer of his desk, the former mayor, late mayor of Jerusalem, had a letter in his where he kept it all the time where uh, it was the letter that every Jordanian soldier had in their breast pocket uh, as they went into battle in 67, which was a letter written by King Hussein ordering every Jordanian soldier that upon entering Jerusalem, meaning West Jerusalem, to kill every Jewish man, woman, and child, uh, signed Hussein ibn Talal ibn Abdallah. And um, that was the intent. And then I remember Monday I went to school uh, in the uh, Hill Academy of Pittsburgh, and uh, we were all 
um, given these uh, cardboard boxes. Um, the, I, I, maybe it was the, called the Israeli Emergency Fund, I'm not sure. And we were asked to go around door to door in our neighborhood uh, to raise money uh, for Israel. And I can't begin to explain or describe what I confronted when I knocked on doors. You know, I got out of school in those days at 3.30. I'm going around around 4 or 5 o'clock in the neighborhood. And um, mostly women answered the door in those days. This is the, uh, the late 60s. And the panic. And the, um, the passion, which I faced, overwhelmed me. Because every Jew who, uh, whose door I knocked on, the women would scrounge the bottom of every purse to put whatever they could into that pushka. Because in 1967, we knew that every nickel that went to Israel was for the direct defense of Israel. People forget those weren't days when Israel could get weapons from the U.S., there was an arms embargo by France. It was a matter of life and death. And yeah, the, the Israeli ingenuity um, retrofitted all those tanks and, and yeah, created. Was, they they took junk from World War Two. And it was nuts what they were doing. And they and, were able. They were they were able to fight with uh, with outdated weaponry. Yes, and they raised the. That was it's amazing what happened. And then I remember 1973 during the Yom Kippur War. I was in Eretz with you in those days. Yes, we were both we there know, then. We, we didn't know the war broke out till after Neil. Till after, till, right? Till after Yom Kippur, right? Right. I'll never forget that. We didn't know anything. We were in Yeshiva the whole day. We didn't know anything. And um, listening to Sheftel Neuberger uh, storm the heavens with his <laughs> with his with his with his, with his Neila. <laughs> right, and then we went, and then you know we went home after Yom Kippur and Benis and I'll never forget. I mean. And this was replicated in every community. In the world. I, I just just to, to interrupt in, to what you were saying. I remember as we we went to the dining room to eat. That's right. That's and there we were a couple of, and there was. I remember a certain. Uh, he's a head of a school. I don't want to say his name right now. He had he had left early, and he was already in the dining room eating already. <laughs> and as I was coming in. He was coming out. He already broke the fast <laughs> earlier, and he said, "You don't believe it? There's a war in Eretz Israel." And I, right. I, that's I mean, how I, I, I that, that's how I heard about it. And I'll, after we get off the air, I'll tell you who it was. But anyway, <laughs> but he was but the I, one who was the pastor, the basura that there's war in Eretz Israel. Yes. So, so, but in community after community, because we the communities, I guess, had learned from the '67 experience, the amount of money raised. In the opening days of the Yom Kippur War was astronomical. I mean, I know, I mean, you'll learn this much later, obviously, what happened in, in the city of Montreal. You know, the people who assembled in Charles Bronfman's living room, we're not talking hundreds of thousands of dollars, we're talking tens of millions of dollars that were raised in every Jewish community in North America to immediately send over the necessary funds uh, for Israel. It was a matter of life and death. A hundred percent. Look, and, and for now, those th- those are going to be listening to our episode here um, aren't well. I could I, I could post the the video, but uh, Rabbi Pupko is is clearly um, emotionally uh, taken by this. Some people might think that the the our recording is going bad, and 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 I appreciate the the, the depth of of, of what you what you saw 
uh, I think it was also a sense, you know, and, and again, I, I'm not trying to uh, blunt the drama of your story, but I think just to put in perspective, there was this idea that the Holocaust had started again. There was an idea in 67, we were only less than 20 years, well, 20 years away from almost the ultimate destruction of the Jews. The adrenaline surge that resulted in so much support from Chutzlaretz, as we would call it today, came from this idea that, as you're saying, this is a second Holocaust. Right, no, in in other words, Israel... At the very least, at the very least, and it's so much more. Israel, at the very least, was the antidote uh, to what had allowed the Holocaust to happen, and that Jews would again be would again, and I mean for the first time in in 1900 years again, be the masters of their own destiny, have a place that they could call their own, have a place where they could secure themselves from the design of their adversaries and the anti-Semites. And here was Israel for it. In other words, the cynics at the time could say, you know, we made it easier for them. It used to be when they wanted to kill us, they had to hunt us down in, a, you know, in, in scores of countries and, and thousands of communities. Now we put ourselves in one place, or many of us did. And we made, we made it easier target for them. But Israel survived. And Israel didn't just survive. Israel thrived and flourished. And not only that, which people don't, necessarily appreciate it if they're younger than a certain age, was that Israel was the darling of the world. Yes, I Israel was understood to have fought a just cause as they continue to fight a just cause. But it was understood as a just cause. The cause it hasn't changed. Yes, I, the I, world's I, understanding of it has changed. I, 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 I remember again, you know, putting a little lighter tone here. I remember <laughs> sitting and in, in, um, also, and again, sharing with you this, this was also for me one of the most vivid impressions. I'm going to say not your father, the Rav, but Rabbi Ephraim Greenblatt, Talmud Muvuk of Rav Meisha Feinstein. I, was, I wanted to play with his kids. You might remember them, Menachem, Yitzi, you, of course you know them. And uh, they're all Choshevar Abonim today, and I would go, I went over their house, and the father was, 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 was like hunched over the radio. Yes. <clears throat> this is a Talmud Chachamu Leipasek Pumei Megirsei, and he was hunched over the radio. And I remember him him saying, "We've got to hear everything that's going on." There was a a, a sense <clears throat> of of intensity that I had I never seen on adults before. Oh, I mean, this was it was overwhelming. And and here's the thing: the world today, I know, is a very different place. I know that uh, 1967 for many is ancient history. Um, it, uh, it was over 50 years ago. I understand. And, um, but it, it many things have changed. Uh, and many, many things have changed uh, in a negative way, and, and, but many things have changed in a positive way. And one of the things that's changed in a positive way is the dependence of the state of Israel on diaspora philanthropy. You can't compare what, is, what, what Jewish philanthropy did for Israel in the past to what it means to Israel today. At one point, I mean, I, I, I wish I had the numbers with me, but at, at one point it was uh, represented 5% of Israel GDP. Today it's less than uh, less than 1%, much less than 1%. Israel today is a vibrant uh, economy. Uh, Israel does not depend on American philanthropy the way it did. In fact, I would argue that American philanthropy 
to Israel, does more for American Jews than it does for Israel. It gives American Jews the ability to visit Israel, to walk through Israel, and to feel as if they're partners in this great majestic dream of a Jewish home. It does much more for us than it does for Israel. I do not believe that Israelis need our philanthropy to anywhere near the extent it was needed in the past. I don't buy that argument at all. Uh, Israel today can take care of itself. Baruch Hashem. It's a vibrant, vibrant economy and a vibrant culture and a vibrant society. And I, I would even argue that with the elections, and I've said this for the last 15 years, it would be best if the state of Israel negotiated a drawdown in American governmental aid. Israel doesn't need the $3 billion a year or the $2 billion a year they get from America the way they used to. And for Israel to stand on its own two feet may be the healthiest thing uh, for the state of Israel. And they do stand on their own two feet. And, and the aid, I know, benefits America in many ways. I understand all of that. But but this idea that Israel continues to be a recipient of American American aid sometimes poisons the dialogue about Israel and America. And maybe we, and maybe it's, it's a burden we no longer need. Um, well, so you would actually... Um... Um, you would actually uh, uh, go against a lot of, I think, some of, uh, I don't know if APAC's uh, stated goals are that way or the WZO. So you're saying right. that. No, so I, I don't see, again, Israel today, again, is not, is, does not need us like they used to. They don't. We need Israel. I want to tell you something. And I know the Haredim will certainly disagree with what I'm going to say. And, they, and I'm not saying they don't have an argument. But I would argue. that the existence of my shul, the existence of the day schools in North America, the existence of, of the shul and the vibrant Jewish life in America is the direct result of the creation of the state of Israel. After the Holocaust, we were a broken people. We were a broken people. And the only thing which revived our soul and revived our spirit was the creation of the Jewish state. It gave Jews everywhere the pride necessary to continue to identify, to continue to believe, to continue to function as Jews. It is, we are dependent on the state of Israel. I believe that not only in the security sense that it's the ultimate safe haven for persecuted Jews, if every, and if anything takes a turn. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think of it in, in, in those pessimistic terms. I think of it as the sense that without the state of Israel, the pride and dignity and, and, and that we would that we need that we rely on to continue to navigate life in diaspora as Jews without Israel we don't have it we don't uh, Israel revived revived us so I believe that American Jewry today is much more dependent on the state of Israel than is Israel dependent on American Jewry um, I would also argue that It's sort of, it's sort of, just to get you to uh, summon your thoughts, it's almost like um, the, the reverse argument that you've been hearing about the effects of Trump on the rest of the world. In other words, people had been saying that what happens in America and the leadership in America trickles down. Right. For us, the fact that every we take so much pride in the fact that we have an independent state, uh, a powerful state, a state of, of brilliance and entrepreneurship and other things, and allows us to feel solid and positive in our Jewish identity, despite living in right. environments that are sometimes antithetical to religious life. 
So I mean, I, I know what happened in 19... Remember something. Whether it's Asha Torah or, or, or Simeach or, or Chabad, whoever it is that had great success in Kirov and Outreach in the 1970s, none of that would have happened without the Six-Day War. No, none that, of it. Yeah, it's none true. Of it. The, the, okay? It was only the Six-Day War that triggered uh, the Kirov movement. Okay? And people don't understand this. Chabad had sent out emissaries before to no avail. The Six-Day War triggered the entire Balchuva movement. The tr- Six-Day War triggered the Soviet Jewry movement. So, so uh, it, you know, I, I'm in agreement with you. It, it definitely, there was, it, was, it was fumbling to find its way. And the Six-Day War, and let's just speak in sociological terms, it, 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 I, I, I don't. I agree in the mystical aspect of the Six Day War. I'm one of the people who believes that it was the Yad Hashem, and and, and we could talk at a different time about did we miss a chance there for uh, for the Mashiach. But we could talk about a different time. But I think what happened was is that just like Yisro in the time of the Torah, there was such a stirring of interest, even in the most disenfranchised Jews. Right. That therefore, hey, what's going on in Israel? I, I didn't know what it was. I thought it was just some sabras and, and crazy little hats, you know, tending ta- cactuses. Now I see what they are, and uh, waves of people, w- young people specifically, went to Israel, and that's where their hearts were ready to be opened. Hundred percent. To... I mean, there was there was no. I mean, I'll tell you a story from 1976, and Tabby rescued. Independence Day weekend in the U.S. I'm in Atlantic City in the pre-Trump days. There's no casinos yet. I'm in, I'm in 1976. I'm walking down the boardwalk in Atlantic City Sunday morning after the Entebbe rescue, which took place that weekend. And this, and, and this really tall black guy is coming towards me. Sees my keeper. And he goes, hey, man, you guys are okay. <laughs> okay? People don't understand. The world had been terrorized by scores of air, airplane hijacking for all sorts of political causes in the early 70s. I don't, people don't remember this. And then all of a sudden, Israel does something which no one had imagined possible. No one imagined possible. Flying thousands of miles to rescue those who had been hijacked. And a remarkably miraculous rescue. Sure. I mean, and those events, the Six-Day War, the 73 War, and Tebi, it were, were those events that triggered everything we take for granted. The irony is, Haredim, who denied the spiritual value of Zionism, have benefited more than anyone else That's from the for project sure. of Zionism. That, uh, I, I agree with you. And, I think and, that... and they continue to stand on the sidelines of, of the celebration of the creation of the state of Israel. There are valid theological arguments against modern political Zionism. I disagree with them, but I, but I accept that you can make the argument. You can make the argument based on Jewish texts, based on Jewish ideas, that the modern political Zionism was a sin. I disagree with those arguments, but I acknowledge that you can make those arguments. The the illness of the Haredi world on this topic is not so much that they deny the religious authenticity and legitimacy of modern political science. You're allowed to take the opposite position. But two things they deny, which they cannot deny. Two things they deny, which really is terribly dishonest. Number one, 
they pretend that every Haredi Jew prior to World War II was an anti-Zionist, and that's a complete total fabrication, complete total fabrication. There were great Gadolim who were in very much support of modern political Zionism, and they and they pretend as if it never happened. I mean, the tells of Russian Shivas were at the Yom Mitzvah celebration in Cleveland, Mizrahi. We all, as many of us have seen that picture. It was not the banned movement that people think it is. Um, number two, they deny the legitimacy of the counter argument uh, philosophically, and, and they deny it completely. And the fact is, if you look, you know, in traditional, you know, if you look at the Chazal, you look, there's ample support for modern political Zionism. Ample support. Um, you know, Rabbi, you know, I, I know that um, this is clearly a topic that uh, you have thought long and hard about and argued passionately for. Um, but I do think, uh, you know, the, the, and I know you're getting there. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I know you're getting there eventually. Um, but, you know, my <laughs> question was, my question was, I, I think a lot, and you, you have definitely neutralized the first part of my question, which is, yeah, we don't need your money. And the truth is, Israelis, you don't believe, really are that concerned about, you know, the, the, the wealthy donors. I, 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 I'm not sure if I agree with you. I think that what I would say is, is that maybe the money isn't going to, do, to, the, to, to buy tanks and to buy uh, uh, airplane parts. But I do think that there are hundreds and hundreds of institutions, whether it's the Weizmann Institute, uh, whether it's Yad Vashem, whether it's any of the non-officially government institutions, and, and they are, there's probably a list as, as long as the Manhattan phone book there of all the little different institutions, and each one has got their sugar daddy donor that they expect to be making money in nursing homes or whatever it is in America to keep the names on the buildings. And, and I don't deny that when that guy goes to Israel and sees his name on the building, he says, yeah, look what I did. But th- it's also employing and keeping uh, doing positive things there. So Listen, wait, 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 let me just get to the second point. And, I, I, and believe me, I, I defer to your rabbinical and, and, and Zionistic knowledge here on this. Um, but what I would say is the question I, I started out with, which is you've got – let me give you the, par- let me give you the um, hypothetical. You've got a, a, a family. Let's say not, like I said before, a young person who, yeah, send them to Israel. I understand. A family, a family in their 30s, 40s. And they say, Rabbi, you know, the economy's not so great now anyway. We're thinking of selling our house and moving to Eretz Yisrael. Um, and, and they are, he's the guy by Shaney in your shul. You enjoy schmoozing with him about the Steelers. What do you tell this person? And, 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 and what did you tell people like that in terms of leaving and going to Eretz Yisrael? Okay, I ha- I, somebody just asked me uh, last week. And, uh, you know, a situation, they have an older parent here and- this and that, can they leave, and, and, and everything else. Um, I, I, I always encourage all of you. Uh, it, it, it would be very exceptional for me to find a situation where I would advise someone not to go out. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if everyone really understands how much American Jews have suffered because of all of you. And I mean that seriously. What I mean by that is if you look at the modern Orthodox community, uh, one could argue that the leadership of the modern Orthodox community has been decapitated. Yeah. By Aliyah. Uh, you can't find university type synagogues, can't find rabbis. You can't find male men teacher for, uh, for Orthodox, modern Orthodox day schools in the U.S. 
because so many of the best and brightest of the modern Orthodox community are now living in Modi and in Efrat. And uh, whether it, uh, you know, Aaron Lichtenstein is the emblem of that, I suppose, uh, or was the emblem of that. You know, where, where, where uh, you know, the, 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 there's no question that the modern Orthodox community of, of, of North America has been diminished in its abilities and its leadership and the quality of intellectual life because of Aliyah. There's no question. There's no question, much less so in the Haredi world. But uh, even in the Haredi world, I mean, we were kids, all the Gedalim were in America. Today, all the Gedalim are in Let's be blunt. That's where the Gedalim are. And um, in Sion, Torah, we saw that shift in our life. Uh, you know, the era of Ramayshin or Bianchi, uh, you know, it's, it was a different world. And um, uh, and there's no question the more North Orthodox but I still believe, uh, listen, I'm an old-fashioned Zionist. Uh, I will always be in favor of, of Aliyah. I remember when, uh, you know, uh, my late father, we got up in the, after the Six-Day War, and no, it was actually a year later, we had gone to Israel that summer, the summer of 68. Um uh, in 1968, we went as a family to Israel. I walked around with an autograph book act, asking every Israeli soldier I met to sign my autograph book. And my father came back and said, every Jewish family has to commit to at least one of their children making Aliyah. That's how it was. And uh, my sister, my late brother lived in Israel. My, I have a son who lives in Israel. Um, and, uh, you know, Aliyah is, uh, is the ultimate expression of, of Zionism. I think secular Israelis can't figure out, uh, you know, how to encourage it. I think they're a little confused about it. But, and they actually uh, scoff at it. They actually don't even some, understand. Yeah, absolutely. They, they actually don't even understand why the hell would you want to come here? They, I'll tell you a funny story. I mean, the only, the only mile of being in Israel to them is that you're closer to Fukat. <laughs> right. I'll tell you something funny. I, Isn't you know, that a great name? Anyway, right, go right. ahead. Remember my late brother, Yankee. That's a great place. For, that, that is the place to go. P-H-U-K-A-T. That's the great Israeli vacation spot. Go yeah. ahead, anyway. So one time I was, my, my, my late brother, Yankee Meisher, who made Ali, uh, pulled into a gas station. and uh, My Rebbe. My Rebbe, too. <laughs> uh, it, it was very funny. So he had made Ali, as you know, from Miami. So he moved to Israel, and he was at a uh, an Arab gas station in uh, in, uh, in, 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 in Jerusalem. And uh, he got to talking to the Arab mechanic. And the Arab says to him, where did you come from? And he says, you know, I just moved here from, from, from a beach. And the Arab says to him, why would you leave beautiful Miami Beach to move to Israel? <laughs> and my brother, as you know, was very smart and very fun. Turned to the Arab and said, I'll tell you why. There just aren't enough Arabs in Miami Beach. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, Listen, uh, yeah, so people say, but, but again, um, you know, we're living in miraculous times that are sometimes underappreciated. Okay, so let, 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 let me ask you another question. You might remember, we were near Israel together, when the rabbi of Romania, I think, Frozen, came, yeah. came to speak, or was it rabbi of Romania, and he was saying, and he, it was a big... That same dining room that that guy yeah. who had eaten early on him, Kipper, the, whatever, I forgot what it was called, the Sindler Dining Hall, I think it was. And uh, uh, that's, where the, that's where the big speeches were held 
Um, we could, you could, the wafting smell of the uh, three-day-old cream of wheat. <laughs> and Mrs. Fishman, all of a show, I'm getting oh, those, yeah. getting those Griebelach ready. But anyway, here's the point. He got up there and How said. How many times did we break into that kitchen? Uh, well, first, <laughs> every, first of all, every Friday night, that was that was for sure. Up to the point that Rav Heinemann had to give a sheer about how to steal children, remember? Right, exactly. Rav Heinemann said, look, <laughs> uh, you're going to steal children, that's one thing, but at least not. don't be Machal Shabbos no, when you're right. doing it. Your neighbor was all right. It was Machal Shabbos. <laughs> This would be a good Shiloh, whether it was really Geneva, considering the fact that, uh, you know, we had. Uh, but you're right. Considering that's a good question. Anyway, the point was, is that in that dining room um, there, uh, you know, despite the smell, this Rav got up there. And I remember him saying that he wants to close his community down, that the purpose of his Rabonis in Romania was right. to get rid of all the Jews from Romania. Right. And I, I was listening. He said, yeah. I want to send everyone here to throw. I want to close the door. Now, come on. You are the staunch Zionist. Uh, you are the, 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 the voice of, 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 of Isaiah. Do you want to close down uh, Montreal's, uh, based Israel, Beth Aaron? And uh, I've seen your kitchen. I've seen your kitchen. You ain't going to get a kitchen like that in, in, in Israel. You're not going to be able to cook a turkey like that in Israel. Are you, are you, you, is that your dream? I'm going to close up. We're all going to move here to throw. Listen, I, I, I live in the world of the, of the real and the fact. <laughs> I know no matter how much I encourage Aliyah or anybody else encourages Aliyah, no matter high, how high day school tuitions are in Englewood or Teaneck, and no matter how much money you can save by moving digital and getting a free education for your kids, no matter, there will always, I'd be as goal, there will always be adults. Right? Jews will stay here. We're talking here about. Aliyah, that is a couple of thousand people a year right now. No Jewish community in America is at risk due to Aliyah. You know, if it if, if it quadruples, it's not going to put any community at risk. But well, it, can Israel take it though? Community. Do you think? Do you think Israel could? Like I started our question with, you know, you know the Chazal Tzali and Yushalayim. One of the things that never said there's not enough room in Yushalayim. All right, so you believe? <laughs> that, okay, but those Nisim, according to some Rishonim, especially right. Nisim in, in Pirkei Avos, although this one might not be in Pirkei Avos, some say it was only during the time of the the first base Amikdash when there was Gilu right. I, I Again, there's enough room, and if there's not enough, we'll get Jordan uh, as part of Israel. There's not a problem. You don't think so? <laughs> you know, I, I, I'll tell you what I'm worried about um, more. You know, I've always said I want to be buried in Israel, and I'm going to have to be buried on top of a bunch of other people. You know, that's the way it seems like. Listen, on top ain't bad, but is the problem. Yeah, oh, they, 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 they do that exactly. Um, <laughs> Listen, these are these are wonderful problems to have. Yes, I want to so? tell you something. Listen, you know, I want to tell you another story. You know, you know. Okay, I'll tell you a couple of things, just to prove my point. You know, they they. Um, for Mayor Simcha de Vince. Um, Hakoyan. Was, <laughs> was once visited by a Jew who had just come back from Palestine. And uh, he came to Mayor Simcha and he complained bitterly about how the Jews in Palestine aren't religious. Nobody keeps Shabbos, nobody keeps kosher, everything's terrible. You know what Mayor Simcha said to him? The Mayor Simcha said the following. He said to him, I'm sorry, let me have it on my computer for a second. Um, he said to him like this. He said in Yiddish, and I'll do the Yiddish before I do the English. He says, 
Iskadal wie Iskadash. Erstens darf du sein Grace und noch dem Heil. He says, what do we say about God? Yiskadal wie Iskadash. God should be great, God should be holy. He said the same thing applies to Israel. Let it first be great, then worry about it being holy. I mean, and that's what we've seen. I remember, you know, I, I always, whenever I'm in Israel, I, uh, I spend, uh, generally spend Shabbos in Yerushalayim. A couple of years ago, for the first time, I spent Shabbos in Tel Aviv. And, uh, you know, I grew up, and we all lived thinking one thing about Tel Aviv, you know, it's the opposite of Jerusalem. In terms of religious devotion and everything else. And I remember sitting on the porch of my hotel room, two o'clock in the morning, Thursday night, Thursday night. And the beach was filled with kids partying and having a good time. Because like Thursday nights, like Saturday night, in terms of how the weekend works in Israel, they were having a great time all night. And I got to tell you something. I, I'm a sick, pathetic, nostalgic sentimentalist. And when I see these kids partying, all I think is how wonderful it is to live in a world where Jewish kids can be carefree and, and enjoy themselves. Because I know we're all there grandparents. We all know where they were, whether they were in Eastern Europe or in Arab countries, and they could never have imagined a world in which their grandchildren were now living. I saw there's something beautiful. And I know, you know, not yeah. everyone would agree. Um, the next night, Friday night, I assumed I'd see the same scene, because Tel Aviv. Right? Who keeps Shabbos in Tel Aviv? So I go out on my porch midnight Friday night and it's empty. Completely empty. 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, and it's completely empty. And I was talking to people the next day, and you know, I said, what's going on? There's a big party. I said, what do you mean? They're but they're at home with their families Friday night. They all have Friday dinner. And that's what people don't understand about Jewish life in Israel. When you use the word Chiloni in America, it means one thing. But if you ask Israelis what it means, they'll say, are you Chiloni? They'll say, yes, I'm Chiloni. He says, listen, you, you eat on Yom Kippur. He says, are you crazy? Chiloni in Israel is not a description of your private religious life. Chiloni is a description of your public political life. You know, what party you vote for. How much entanglement do you want between Judaism and, and political power? You, ask, you, you look at the studies done on religious life in Israel. People call themselves Chiloni. Don't fa they fast on Yom Kippur. They won't touch bread on Pesach. When they get married, they have a rabbi, and they want the rabbi there. When they die, they want a rabbi there. You are describing what we would call in America a conservative Jew. And we don't, and, and here's the problem. North American Jews, all of us, the face of Israel that we confront when we go there are professors and journalists. Now let me ask you a question. What would I think of America if the only people I talk to are professors and journalists? Would I really understand America? If I, if I talk to professors and journalists, I would get a very skewed understanding of American life. If the only people I spoke to, the only people I read, were journalists and professors. That's who American Jews meet when they go on missions to Israel. They hear academics, you know, people, you know, analysts. Have they ever spent Shabbos in Aria or Kiryat Gat or Beersheba? Real Israel? They see Tel Aviv. So, Israel is a much more Jewish country than Haredim will uh, admit. Much more Jewish country. Uh, people, and, and what's astonishing is 
that after all the difficulties with religious parties and sometimes the misbehavior of religious parties is how much abiding respect there is for Judaism amongst the non-religious in Israel. An abiding respect. Listen to what young Israeli uh, singers are singing about, how many Jewish texts they have mined in order to form their lyrics for modern popular songs in Israel. It's remarkable. Yeah, and yeah, Israel is, in fact, we all know that Israel is the singular future of the Jewish people. How long it'll take to, you know, to, to be as well? We hope. Know, it, it, again, I, I just said, look, you know, you, you, it's it's a very beautiful imagery, and I, I love what you have to say about the uh, about the about what was going on on the lack of what was going on on the beach, and even what was going on on the beach, um, and. Um, uh, but really, there there is a, a lot of uh, nasty invective that you do hear, and and maybe that nasty invective is from the journalists. But we do hear a lot of, of claims of parasitism, and, and and the Israelis is is a polarized society. Um, again, what you're saying is true. On the other hand, the polarization and the, the, there is a, a, a an element there, and, and I'm going to be honest with you here. Um, my son made Aliyah. My son was in the army. My son uh, uh, had a very high profile, and he is still navigating his way, you know, through Israeli society. And part of the reason is is because it isn't that easy to become absorbed. It, 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 it is. It is. And again, we're talking about you know, my son. No one could have been more idealistic. Right. And his desire By to move Teretisro, it's not an easy thing. And, and let me just say even further about the young kids you talked about, uh, and, and we're going to wrap it up here because you, you've got to go, but you talk about the young kids, you're going to get free tuition from Englewood and Teaneck, and I'm going to have to pay $40,000 to Frisch or whatever it is it costs. It's not going to be that easy to integrate uh, an 11-year-old or 10-year-old into oh. Israeli society. Huh. The Israelis, this is, this is you know, uh, this is a tough group. These are the Cobra Kai sometimes yeah. uh, versus Miyagi-Do. You know, when well, they... On a closing well, note, I would say the following. What you're describing is real. Not only that, I think if we had a larger moral imagination, we would, in retrospect, grant more credit to our parents and grandparents who moved from a hostile countries to to to, uh, to the U.S. or Canada, and how difficult and traumatic a move is. I mean, that move was certainly those moves were certainly much more traumatic than American Jew moving to Israel, and yet they navigated it. And and I would say that in retrospect, we we, sh- we should have greater admiration and awe for what they were able to accomplish in crossing oceans, because we all know moving is tough. I mean, psychologists will tell you the three greatest traumas in life are death, divorce, and moving. Right, those are the three traumas. Moving is really hard. You have to have a lot of respect. Remember something. I mean, Irving Howe wrote this in World of Our Fathers. People forget how many Jews from Russia moved to the Lower East Side and then moved back to Russia. I mean, it's an astonishing percentage. Astonishing percentage. Moving is tough. It's really hard. So, again, and for that very reason, I don't believe that Aliyah puts our communities at risk. I believe that it is the right choice overwhelming. I believe Israel is the only singular permanent address of the Jewish people. In a couple of years, the majority of all Jews in the world will be living in Israel. Right or eight, already today, the majority of Shomer Shabbat Jews in the world live in Israel. Right now, already today, the majority of Jewish children being born are being born in the land of Israel. 
that is the singular future of the Jewish people. And, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, and uh, those who decide to make Aliyah are stepping from the sidelines of Jewish history to the center stage of Jewish history. Jewish history is not being written in Montreal and New York. Jewish history is being written in the state of Israel. And yet, again, one should definitely take the wise counsel of people who know whether you're, you've got the right stuff to make it. Uh, it, it I, I, I think it's, it's, it's wonderful to be inspired by that great generation. But time and time again, we've shown that we don't necessarily have that medal. And um, right. I, I think there's, as you say, I think there's probably nothing worse than, than going with so much loving intent and anticipation and then, and then discovering the difficulty and, and the fact that you are marginalized. And I think America... I'm America, sitting here in Montreal praising Aliyah. So the obvious question is... You know, I said it. I asked you before. You, 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 that's you know, what I'm I asked you. In Montreal, and I know. I, I don't know intimately. I mean, I know from my kid. I know, you know, I know from my sister, my brother. Aliyah is not easy. All I'm saying is I know <clears throat> that philosophically and historically, it's the right choice. Well, Personally, for any human being, that I don't know. Yeah, well, I gotta again, go. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.